This is Sacrilegious with your host, Gary Latterman. We're back again, and I am so happy to be here, as I usually am, but I think uh, even more so today. It's great to have uh, my guest with me, who is uh, one of my all-time favorite English professors. Uh, he's a great uh, uh, friend as well, uh, and he also is, uh, at the moment, uh, dean at Emory University. He's dean of Emory College of Arts and Sciences. So I'm really pleased, again, to have uh, Charles Howard Candler, professor of English, and dean Michael Elliott. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Gary. Thanks for having me. I'm thrilled to get the invitation. Uh, I note I'm not your first dean either on the Sacrilegious Podcast. Uh, no, that's right. But uh, I hope to have more uh, in, in the coming episodes as well. I like the idea of, of having deans around here to talk on our topic, which is sacrilegious and thinking about things religious in our lives. So that's mainly what we're going to be getting into Although you would think, having a dean on here, who also happens to be my boss, we'd talk about some of the real uh, urgent and pressing uh, issues in higher education, you know, like, well, what? The future of the humanities. Affordability. <laughs> access. <laughs> access, affordability. Uh, yeah. I mean, Respect in the public sphere. Oh, there's so much uh, to cover, uh, and that could be covered, but we're not going to be doing that today. Um, I instead asked you, Michael, to be on here really for one uh, reason and to focus on uh, really one topic, and that topic is Moby Dick. The reason this uh, came to mind as a possible uh, episode with you included, uh, was, is really because of a conversation that we had in spring. Uh, we, I don't know what we were talking about, maybe the future of humanities and higher ed or something uh, of great importance, maybe perhaps how my annual review was going. But, um, but no, we, what, what came up and what really struck me was that you were doing, I think it was a directed reading with a student. That's right. Uh, with uh, with this book, Moby Dick, and it's um, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it is certainly a, a, a feature in my reading life. But I, I thought, wow, man, you're a busy guy. You must have so much going on, and for you to make this kind of commitment, uh, well, says so something about you, uh, but also about the about the book. And and I thought, damn, I wish I could just be there with that uh, in in that in those sessions with you. Well, it was, it was a lot of fun, and I will say I'm always grateful for students who come to me and want to do something outside of the regular course of their study. And Moby Dick is a book that I would teach regularly when I was teaching full-time, and I haven't had a chance to do so for a while. So this was uh, a real treat. And uh, reading a powerful, complicated work like Moby Dick in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, national international reckoning with racial violence, all of the things that we were experiencing last spring, an insurrection in the Capitol. The book always feels prescient, and certainly that was not, it was, it was just as true this last semester as any other time. Absolutely. I think, uh, yeah, the book really does um, uh, speak to the now um, and to the contemporary scene in so many, in so many ways. And, uh, you know, I think, as you were saying, we could look at it in terms of race, in terms of politics, you know, just in terms of um, so many aspects of social life. Um, but for today, and obviously for this broadcast, I want to be thinking uh, more about some of the religious uh, elements of, of the book. Um, certainly, uh, there are, are many uh, different ways uh, one can talk about how the book reflects different religious ideas and attitudes and sensibilities. Um, but it certainly, I think, fits also with this, uh, <laughs> with the spirit of this podcast and, uh, you know, the way it is uh, so subversive, the way it is in many ways sacrilegious or uh, blasphemous in some of uh, the descriptions and um, some of the, you know, ways in which Melville 
talks about uh, religion, religion of, of, of his time in the middle of the 19th century. But again, I think, uh, as we'll maybe see, that it's not uh, irrelevant to, to our contemporary yeah. moment. Well, Melville was so steeped in the culture of his moment, which, as you say, in the middle of the 19th century, was a deeply religious culture in a way that I think we would find pretty unrecognizable today, although we're a, a, a spiritual culture in the way that you've talked about in many ways. And I, you know, I certainly embrace your very expansive definition of what counts of counts for religious. But in you know, Melville's time, of course, religion was much more narrowly defined, and he was in it. And it is it is all over this book uh in in ways that are surprising and funny and serious all at the same time uh it's one it's one of the reasons i think people do keep returning to the book is there's something there that uh they find, feel like it helps them meditate on meaning making in their own lives i agree i think that's nicely put and there you know there there is something to be said for the kind of vitality this this book seems to have and and in terms of the long durée uh, you know over the long haul this is uh, continues to be an important kind of critical book perhaps a sacred text um, in some ways for some some people do you before we get into some of the content of the book I mean do you see it uh, you know in those terms a sacred text or you know I like what you said about meaning making and this is a kind of uh, a useful place for rumination and contemplation I, you know, I would call it a sacred text, but I would say it's an iconic text, and it's certainly a touchstone. I don't think you can do what I do, you know, in a, as a professor of American literature, and even maybe what you do as a professor of American studies, without at least having some kind of familiarity with the book that goes beyond the pop culture references to hunting the whale. Uh, and that said, the pop culture hunt references to hunting the whale are, you know, are powerful and are everywhere. I mean, you can't go a couple of weeks uh, without watching and reading The New Yorker without encountering Ahab or the whale saddling up to the bar or on a desert island or, or, or something like that. Um, you know, that said, uh, there's a, a co colleague that I have uh, at the University of Pittsburgh named Jonathan Eric, who has a very powerful argument about what he calls hyper-canonization in American literature. And he points out in American literature as a field in the middle of the 20th century really came to valorize a very small hand, you know, handful of texts as being emblematic of American culture and American literature in the midst of the Cold War. And Moby Dick is clearly one of them. And so I don't know if it's sacred, but it's certainly something that, you know, you can't get away from, uh, even if you wanted to. Right. Uh, and 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 that certainly applies to many things that are sacred, <laughs> but uh, uh, but yeah, it's, it is kind of everywhere. Uh, yeah, uh, I think, and and even if you aren't listening to Led Zeppelin, uh, Moby Dick, you're gonna find uh, find references you know, in music, film, across culture, uh, and I think that that speaks to something. And 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 again, to go back to what you said about meaning making, a central. <laughs> category for uh, those of us in religious studies and thinking about, you know, religion beyond the bounds in some way. So, so there, you know, it, it has that role in my life for sure. I mean, I go back to this book and read through it, not because, you know, I love cetology, but because I, uh, you know, I find so much depth in it and so much um, reflection on, on, on deep existential issues that is unique and 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 is you know both historical perfect in in, in terms of its context uh but also applicable you know again in sort of my own life do, and do, reflection do you remember when you first read the book was it in a class was it outside of class uh no it was i was an older man you know it was way way uh later in life i didn't really read much when i was a undergrad but uh i tried to make up for it later so so Oh, yeah, no, this was it was it was much later when I had kids and when I was traveling. It was, you mm -hmm. know, I started, I think it may have been on, uh, quite honestly, I believe it was on a plane going to Japan when I was uh, uh, giving lectures there. You know, it was just a perfect reading companion it's, it's for a, me. It's a great traveling companion because 
as long as it is, uh, it has many short chapters. And so it's easy to put down and pick up again at a moment's notice. Right. And I actually also think it's a book that reads better as you get older. Sometimes I ask students and undergraduates when I'm preparing to teach the book or even when I'm just talking to them about literature, whether they've been assigned to read it in high school. And I'm always disappointed when I find out somebody has. I think I think high school is too young for the book. Sure, uh, it's actually a book that wears better on an older person who's experienced a little bit more misery and uh, confusion in their lives. Right, being out at sea in the wide, wide ocean, uh, certainly, yeah, can can bring some uh, wisdom and uh, madness <laughs> to one's life. <laughs> so later in life, I agree, it makes sense. And, and this book can be something of an anchor to get a little carried away. But but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I find it is a, a real kind of central touchstone. And, and to be honest, I'm not sure how widespread uh, it is. I'm glad to hear you are teaching it pretty regularly. I am, but you know, I don't think it's it's a book that most people know of but don't actually read, which is true of a lot of classic literary works, and that's fine. Uh, I do think it's a much different book than what most people expect when they actually open up the covers, and, and that's in fact one of the best things about teaching it is that students they just they just know it's long. They of course know about the whale and that there's a hunt. But they don't really know much more about what's actually in the book than that. And they're almost always surprised, especially by its humor uh, and certainly by some of the relationships in the book that that we might get a chance to talk about uh, a little bit. And uh, they also sometimes go through their own kind of relationship where they become frustrated sometimes, they become angry, and then they end up feeling like they've come to terms with something that's, that's difficult. And... I think if you do nothing else in college, if you can do that, that's that's a win. Yeah, hey, that's great. I agree, and um, this is one avenue for for all of that, uh, for sure. So I hope you can do the the class again. Uh, another inspiration for me, um, and 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 why I I hold this text so highly is uh, one of my co- our colleagues now emeritus uh, Brooks Holyfield taught a grad sem- a grad seminar. Just on this book, and I think he did it once. And I, I just uh, another another kind of uh, experience. I wish I, I had had the opportunity to be a part of. But what about with you uh, when you're teaching this? Do you do much with religion, or have you? You know, how do you? How do you at least for us to get started initially? Kind of think about the role of religion in, in this text. Well, so first of all, you know, there's there's it's just laid in with with references to religious stories, religious language, institutions, there are sermons, the story of Jonah, uh, you know, from the Old Testament, of course, is everywhere in the book. And so one of the things that you get to do as a professor teaching a book right now is just make sure that students are picking up on some percentage of that, not 100%, because I think uh, that would that would become, you know, almost too erudite if you were to pick up every single reference just even the names, right? Ishmael, Ahab uh, are all Old Testament uh, Old Testament names. But you want them to be getting some of the, the flavor of that. Right. But the idea that I think you really fixate on, I really fixate on, uh, that I think brings them into the realm of the religious and sacrilegious is the idea of blasphemy. Uh, what does it mean to to blasphemy. Why um, is that word thrown around a little bit in the in the book? And uh, there's this very powerful scene early on in the book. Uh, one of my, you know, one of the things that we really dig into anytime I teach uh, called the quarter deck. It's in the chapter called the quarter deck. This is where Ahab brings out the crew and sort of reveals to them you think you've signed up to just hunt some whales. In fact, we're going to chase the world. To, to kill this one whale. And uh, Starbuck, who is his main antagonist in some ways on the ship, says, that's that's crazy. Vengeance on a dumb brute, he says. That's blasphemous. The idea that you would be hunting down a, an animal as though it were 
a malicious agent. And Ahab, you know, has this great set of lines where he says, you know, I'm looking for meaning in the world. And this whale has been sent to me. And I don't know if he is the object of, of, of uh, or the agent of a higher power or simply a thing in and of itself. But I don't care. Uh, I'm still going to hunt the whale and and kill it. And he says, don't talk to me of blasphemy. I would insult the sun. Uh, I'd strike the sun if he insulted me. Don't talk to me of blasphemy. I'd strike the sun if he insulted me. And so, you know, we talk a lot about that. You know, why is the idea of chasing this whale and going after this impossible task blasphemous? What does blasphemous mean? What does, uh, you know, what is the theory of the sacred, the spiritual that is animating Starbuck and his objections? Um, why is Ahab so determined to work against that? And for Starbuck, at least, the whole thing is sacrilegious. Right, right. The whole, the whole voyage. I mean, the, that, that dialogue and contrast is, a, is definitely a key thread throughout, um, seeing how that plays out, and especially when thinking about the theme of, of, of religion and these religious views. But yeah, you, you and I will kind of go back and forth a little bit and, and pull out some of our, our favorite themes and, and topics that tie to, to religion. And I think this one is, you know, is, is that perfect. It's right, right on and is very much, uh, as, as we've alluded to, a kind of a real strong voice or sentiment throughout the text. It's just like, what are people's uh, expectations and, and assumptions and kind of throwing those in people's faces and turning them upside down. And to kind of go off on that and, and, and thinking about sort of blasphemy and, and uh, Ahab uh, as uh, someone who articulates this kind of incredibly kind of single-minded effort at vengeance that obviously as you read through it, has theological implications. You know, is this about God? Is this about the absence of God? And so on. But also, uh, is this what chapter was that you just mentioned? That's 36. Yeah, later in chapter uh, uh, 41, that's called Moby Dick, near the end when, when um, you know, we're getting more from Ahab about his purposes and what he's up to. This too kind of ties into what we're talking about when at the end of that chapter, uh, Melville writes how it was that they so aboundingly responded to the old man's ire by what evil magic their souls were possessed that at times his hate seemed almost theirs. You know, it's there's this sort of contagion of his what yes. evil uh, that everyone is just kind of buying into. And, and we hear, at least I guess this is the narrator kind of saying, man, you know, this, the, you know, this is, um, you know, not just about the blasphemy, but the ways in which, uh, you know, this can actually draw people in. No, I, 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 that's a great, that's a great line. And it comes up several different times, this idea that Ahab's hatred and his vengeance and his, very, you know, almost simplistic account of the world, right? Which is that there is this thing out there in the world that I must kill in order to have meaning and, and fulfillment in my life, even though it will put everybody at risk uh, on this boat, it puts the owners at risk who've invested in the boat, that that is so contagious, use, use the right word, so, so persuasive that he's able to bend the will of this entire crew that have signed up for something entirely different. There's uh, uh, another line, actually the very beginning of that chapter begins, I, Ishmael, was one of that crew. My shouts had gone up with the rest. My oath had been welded with theirs. And stronger I shouted and more did I hammer and clinch my oath because of the dread in my soul. And to me, those are some of the most chilling lines in the book, because Ishmael, who is, you know, the, a narrator of sort for this, for this book, and I, and I really understand the book in some ways as being this 
this conflict between Ishmael and Ahab, or at least this relationship between Ishmael and Ahab. Ishmael, up to this point, has been thoughtful, a little purposeless, a little feckless. We've already seen him forge this really interesting relationship with the South Sea Islander Queequeg, which is you know, one of the best literary friendships of which I, I know, uh, maybe even a little romance there as they share a bed. And so, so we have this, this, great, this great sense of Ishmael as somebody who will be skeptical of everything. And yet he, too, is completely won over by this vision. And that's when you really know that this is, gonna, this is going forward. And this is, I think, you know, I think one of the reasons it feels like a 20th century book, and unfortunately maybe a 21st century book, is uh, history would prove Melville right, that strong uh, monomaniacal voices, uh, strong authoritarian presences could win over uh, the most disparate and disjointed series of men. Sure, right, uh, right, absolutely. Fascism and and the kind of uh, collective effervescence that can be contagious and spread among people who, um, you know, for whatever reasons, will be will will buy in yeah. to yeah. the ideology and and the charisma. And so, yeah, that is a frightening moment. And, and uh, so that's in contrast to one I was going to kind of bring up, which is, um, again, thinking about some of how we might tease out some of the religious uh, qualities of, of the book. Um, and that's, for me, like just the beginning, you know, just that opening chapter yeah. is everything. And I just love every time I reread it, starting with, with that chapter, Looming's. And so, yeah, I mean, to get to the to the heart of it and thinking about what, uh, you know, Ahab is going crazy about, is that just a projection? <laughs> is that just an image of himself? So my favorite, you know, one of my favorite sections, and, and for me, I think the, the uh, I think he uses this line, it's the key to it all. It's the, it's the, the secret to the whole book. And, and so this is... Um, uh, in the chapter that begins, uh, but here is an artist. So mm -hmm. he goes through and he's talking about water and how people are drawn to water, always yeah. being drawn to water and thinking about the power of water and how, you know, the kind of crazy and amazing symbolism of, of, of water and its mystical qualities, you know, certainly, as well as, well, you know, maybe it's dangerous ones uh, for sure. But so he goes through some of this and then he said, okay, and then he comes to Narcissus and still deeper the meaning of that story of Narcissus, who because he could not grasp the tormenting mild image he saw in the fountain, plunged into it and was drowned. But that same image we ourselves see in all rivers and oceans. It is the image of the ungraspable phantom of life. And this is the key to it all. So even just from the get-go, you're into the mystery of life. And certainly, uh, maybe not unexpectedly, you know, certainly brings up notions for me of death and thinking, you know, somehow yep. the whale and everything about the whale is about what the fuck is the meaning of death, <laughs> you know, in some way. And what is, you know, you know how, it is, how do we live with that mystery? Well, I think, you know, one of the great things about the book are these chapters uh, called the, the ketology chapters, cetology chapters, right, where we go into all of this very fine-grained empirical knowledge about whales. Right? Ishmael does, uh, you know, part of the nautical pun, a deep dive on whales. And it, it just like, in some ways, it is the fulfillment of the dive into the pools that he's talking about here, right, which he is attracted to the mystery and he decides, I am going to learn everything there is to learn about whales. I mean, and this book, and it's one of the things that drives people absolutely crazy about the book, you actually learn quite a bit about whales, all, you know, all through Ishmael's researches, which were similar to Melville's researches. You can imagine Melville, you know, surrounded on all sides with, uh, with his whaling books, trying to get it all somewhere down into Moby Dick. And on the one hand, it's some of it's very, very dry. And I don't want to, I don't want to pretend that it's not. But there's also this just deep kind of 
pleasure in the quest and this, this sense of desire to make meaning uh, out of what he finds in the world that, uh, you know, I think you're, you're right. It's, it's something that feels that it leaps beyond the page. It is about a, an almost uh, mystical quest. And it, it's sometimes really enchanting and even funny. Uh, it's sometimes frustrating. It's sometimes ultimately maybe dangerous. But it's hard not to recognize, I think, of us, both you and I, Gary, as scholars, a little of ourselves in that, uh, surrounded by, uh, by our passions, by our loves, and trying to go deeper and deeper into that. Sure. Sure. Well, right. And, and then, again, sort of getting lost, you know, kind of being so taken by your own self-image that yeah. you're consumed by it. And that, too, is a kind of, you know, you're, you're lost. What does it mean to not be there or see the beyond, again, the veil or this image, you know, is nothing or death. And, and that's what we got. So that, you know, that to me, you know, I mean, obviously, it's just an, an, an obvious theme, not just for me, but throughout the book. Yeah. But, but one of the things I think that makes a book so, so beautiful or so interesting is that Ishmael keeps getting pulled back from, from that narcissism by his crewmates, right? We have this lovely set of scenes with him and Queequeg at the beginning and then he talks, he has these other chapters where he talks a lot about the crew and talks about their camaraderie together. And, and you know, my favorite, one of my favorite passages, and, and I'll come back at you with this, is this moment when he's on the, on the deck. This is, this is chapter 94, squeeze of the hand. Oh, yeah. I love the, I love this because I feel like it's the, it's the culmination. I love everything about his his relationship with Queequeg, but I feel like this is the culmination of that of that energy where they're they're sitting on the deck and they have to squeeze the spermaceti, which is taken from the whale, uh, in order to keep it uh, liquid enough, I guess, in order to be able to to uh, purify and and cask up. And he sits there on the deck, and all of his, he finds all of his hatred, all of his uh, pessimism about the world, you know, dissipates, and he, he comes into this very Ishmael-like reverie. This is, this is, this is I, I'm going to read this paragraph. It says, squeeze, 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 all morning long, I squeezed that sperm till I found myself almost melted into it. I squeezed that sperm till a strange sort of insanity came over me, and I found myself unwittingly squeezing my co-laborers' hands in it, mistaking their hands for the gentle globules. Such an abounding, affectionate, friendly, loving feeling did this advocation beget, that at last I was continually squeezing their hands and looking up into their eyes sentimentally, as much to say, Oh, my dear fellows, why should we longer cherish any social servities or know the slightest of humor or envy? Come, let us squeeze hands all around. Nay, let us squeeze ourselves into each other. Let us squeeze ourselves universally into the very milk and sperm of kindness. And then it ends in the last paragraph. It says, in thoughts of the visions of the night, I saw long rows of angels in paradise, each with his hands in a jar of spermaceti. Mm, so this great, I mean, you know, a deeply, obviously, homoerotic image of these men on the deck squeezing sperm, which is not sperm, but is like sperm. Uh, that's just why it's called spermaceti. Squeezing this, this animal product uh, and mistaking each other's hands into it and gazing into each other's eyes and falling into reverie. It's, it's not enough to resist Ahab and his, his crazy mission, but it's its own kind of craziness. Right. And, um, it's a, it's a kind of democratic vision, uh, of camaraderie. Right. That reminds me of things like Whitman was writing about it on the same time of how he would walk the streets of, uh, New York and look into the eyes of people going home from work or crossing Brooklyn Bridge and find a sort of affection there. Uh, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. 
Well, and it's, um, well, yeah, I mean, it's uh, maybe there, um, I, I mean, I liked what you were saying about where I started with the, the Loomings quote and, and thinking about the image and getting lost in your own image. And so that's one uh, side of the spectrum. The other, you know, getting lost in yourself. The other is, uh, the other side is Ahab and sort of just getting lost in a leader and just giving up yourself to some leader in some way. And then this, what you described just now is great. I mean, it's certainly is filled with this I mean, homoerotic stuff. If I find spiritual fulfillment in squeezing sperm with my other man, is that sacrilegious? Well, I think it's religious. I, I think it's religious, which makes it sacrilegious uh, to many. Uh, but no, cer certainly, because in that in that scene, what I was going to say is like in this um, beyond camaraderie, it's like in this melding and merging of, of losing your own uh, ego, if I may, you're kind of uh, dissolved and become one with your comrades, uh, with your workmates, with your fellow uh, men. There really are no women uh, to speak of in the story, and we'll come back to that. But, you know, that it has a there's a mystical quality in that kind of weird, ecstatic, almost orgy of uh, let's all be kind of um, losing ourselves uh, through with the spermaceti. And that stands out, you know. And as you say, it's not just out of the blue, but there are other ways in which men come together, uh, so to speak, and uh, um, and that and that has uh, more, you know, has meaning beyond just friendship, you know. And so that maybe I'll jump to, to my next uh, little. Uh, well, there are a number of ways to go, but uh, I guess I'll continue on that theme with, of course. Um, the interactions, as you mentioned early, early on, again with Queequeg and Ish Ishmael and, and Queequeg getting to know each other and sharing a room, and I find and found, you know, that all that that whole sequence itself is sacrilegious. It is blasphemous uh, the way Ishmael, uh, this white Christian man, um, gets to know and gets to understand uh, this tattooed uh, non-white man. So, uh, you know, there, there's a lot that, that's there, but of course, what helps to solidify uh, their friendship and make it more than a friendship to me, it becomes, and as Queequeg mentions, a kind of marriage. Uh, this mm -hmm. is early on in chapter 10, uh, in uh, A Bosom Friend, right? That what precedes that and what helps in that communion, of course, I hate to bring it up to my dean, uh, but is drugs, right? They're smoking their tobacco before Absolutely. before they get intimate and get friendly and, you know, have this marriage and then, you know, have this, again, this sort of, um, I think, uh, beyond simply erotic kind of uh, time. It's intimate, um, sacred time under the covers together. And so that whole sequence again, to me, is speaking to something of, of a sacred quality and some of the religious aspects of our relationships with people. But that also, you know, clearly would have been, uh, I would assume, you know, part of the outrage to many Christians who read through this. Well, it, it's one of the places in the book that's, that's most overtly blasphemous because Ishmael knows that he's supposed to despise everything about what he sees uh, this fellow doing. And, you know, in addition to actually spending time, as you say, under the covers and losing themselves in each other, uh, he actually gets to watch Queequeg uh, perform what looks to him to be a, a kind of religious ritual with his small idol to whom he offers uh, offers tobacco and, a, and an offering. So he actually, you know, that religious difference, and I think this is important from, you know, the kind of historicist scholar in me wants to call this out, that religious difference between uh, Queequeg and Ishmael is in some ways more important to somebody from Ishmael's background than any kind of racial difference. Uh, and certainly related to one another, deeply related to one another, that it's not simply that he's of a different ancestry, it's that he's from an entirely different worldview. And he's constantly referred to as a pagan or a cannibal. And even the, the reference to cannibalism seems to be less literal and more a kind of sense that he's beyond the pale of Christian. 
Right. Which would have been a bit of in the language of the mid 19th century. Right. I think, yeah, I mean, that that's exactly right. And so I would uh, assume for, for some people, for maybe more than some, you know, Melville is really kind of capturing a different kind of, uh, I don't know, anthropological sensibility. We can't be living with the notion that one culture, one religious worldview is better than another. And yeah, that certainly would piss off a lot of people. Uh, today, as we, you know, we know, uh, but back then for, for sure. And it was really brave and courageous. I love what, I don't know where the line is. I'm not going to look for it about, you know, I'd rather sleep with a sober savage than a drunk Christian. It's a great line. And there is, there is a cultural relativism that runs through what we would call cultural relativism that runs through this text and, and some of other Melville's, some other writings by Melville about the, the South Seas. And then what's terrific, I think, about that relationship is the way it evolves over the course of the book and actually carries through to the very end. Uh, Queequeg creates a coffin for himself upon which he inscribes the tattoos on, on his body as a kind of living record of his history. And then he decides he doesn't need the coffin because he's going to live so it becomes a buoy, and then that is the buoy upon which Ishmael will eventually save himself at the, at the tragic end. Of right. So Ishmael literally lives through the absent body, absent slash present body uh, of Queequeg in his yeah. empty coffin. Yeah. Which is a nice, a nice way to end a book for a scholar of death in the 19th century. Oh, my goodness. Know, yeah, no. If you know any of this. Yeah, well, right. And um, it is. It's it's, uh, it's it's incredible ending, beginning and ending, and in between. Uh, but to your point, I agree, is that that, that too is part of the, uh, overusing the term, but that's what I do, the sacred quality of their friendship. I mean, at some point in their interaction under the influence or, you know, when they're together after all of this intimacy, uh, there is a line about, you know, the, the feeling like that you would die for one another, something to those, to, you know, to, to that extent, you know, you would die for each other, for a friend. And so at the end, it's like, this is how it ends. It's like the Queequeg is, is there saving, uh, you know, in some sense, giving his life uh, or giving life to uh, Ishmael. Well, they, they are tied together uh, literally, and, and another time when the word marriage is used, is they're tied together on a rope as they are uh, cutting into the whale. And so their lives literally do become yoked to one another. Yeah. And so that intimacy just gets performed time and time again in the working life of the ship. Right. Right. Good. No, that's, uh, um, I think that, that, notion of intimacy and its relationship to the sacred religious kinds of powers is is an important one um what else do you have you have another one or i got another uh, section okay yeah that's good because uh, i i do love the cetology chapters so this is from the tale right there's a series of chapters that ishmael writes about the different parts of the whale and this one is from the tale which is chapter 86 and it ends with this because I think this this is this is this really gets to, and I'll skip over a few sentences, the kind of quest for meaning making in which Ishmael is is engaged. He says, the more I consider this mighty tale, and it's hard not to hear the homonym of tale and tale there, the more do I deplore my inability to express it. At times there are gestures in it which they would well grace the man of hand, remain wholly inexplicable. In an extensive herd so remarkable occasionally are these mystic gestures that I've heard hunters who have declared them akin to Freemason signs and symbols that the whale indeed by these methods intelligently converse to the world. Dissect him how I may then, I go but skin deep. I know him not and never will. But if I know not even the tale of this whale, how I understand his head much more how comprehend his face, when face he has none. Thou shalt see my back parts, my tail, he seems to say, 
but my face shall not be seen, but I cannot completely make out his back parts and hint what he will, will about his face. I say again, he has no face. So this, you know, I love yes. this dynamic of constantly reaching for understanding, uh, you know, dissection, enumeration, description, the, the quest for some kind of intimate knowledge of one thing, right, the whale. Right. And yet Ishmael also constantly comes back to us and says, but this isn't actually enough. There's, there's something here that remains unknown and inscrutable. And that certainly feels theological to me, right? The whale has no face. You know, something, it's hard not to hear the phrase, the face of God somewhere in there, that there's something that's finally unknowable about this natural object, uh, even though Ishmael has endeavored so hard to know, and in fact, endeavored so hard to kill. Right. Uh, the whale generally and, and, and specifically, the killing, in fact, is not actually equivalent to knowing. Right. Right. And the whiteness of the whale only, you know, uh, you know, brings it to a whole other layer of, um, yeah, both theological implications, but also the, the kind of racial themes, I think, that are also at work in yes. this uh, pre-Civil War um, text. Uh, but to get to, and to, to, to reinforce your point or to maybe just springboard off of it qu um, quickly is, again, one of my favorite um, a uh, chapter of mine, uh, probably one of the more famous sections, but ties into what you're talking about. Because in this section, he does seem to get a sort of glimpse of, of some of the mysteries, right? And it, it, it is uh, certainly also coming more face-to-face -face with the feminine and, and sort of the female presence. In the, in the chapter called the Grand Armada, right, mm -hmm. where, you know, there's just, it's incredible, you know, when you were reading Melville, I mean, I love reading Melville, <laughs> you know, out loud. He's just the most wonderful writer to me. But there are some, you know, just flights of writing that are just unbelievable. But and th this is just quickly, you know, a kind of scene of chaos. Uh, right. All kinds of whales and killings and blood and all kinds of stuff going on, but then yeah, that is the center of it all. Right? They come, you know, they they get to the to um, to the center, and uh, and so I'm going to read too. But far beneath this wondrous world upon the surface, another and still stranger world met our eyes as we gazed over the side, for suspended in those watery vaults floated the forms of the nursing mothers of the whales and those that by their enormous girth seemed shortly to become mothers. The lake, as I have hinted, was to a considerable depth exceedingly transparent. And as human infants, while suckling, will calmly and fixedly gaze away from the breast as if leading two different lives at the time, and while yet drawing mortal nourishment, be still spiritually feasting upon some unearthly reminiscence. Even so did the young of these whales seem looking up towards us, but not at us, as if we were but a bit of gulfweed in their newborn sight. Floating on their sides, the mothers also seemed quietly eyeing us, one of these little infants that from certain queer tokens seemed hardly a day old, might have measured some 14 feet in length and some six feet in girth. He was a little frisky, though as yet his body seemed scarce yet recovered from that irksome position it had so lately occupied in the maternal reticule, where tail to head and all ready for the final spring, the unborn whale lies bent like a tartar's bow, the delicate side fins and the palms of his flukes still freshly retained the plated, crumpled appearance of a baby's ears newly arrived from foreign parts. Uh, yeah, so there too. This is, the, this is the strongest feminine presence in the entire right. book. And it's about reproduction and birth and this sort of sacred, incredibly sacred moment, you know, where we really are in some extraordinary world that, that we are 
uh, a witness to. And that clearly, you know, for Ishmael is, is um, a moment that comes about once in a while uh, here throughout the text of, of a kind of, um, uh, you know, kinship between humans, man, humans, and nature. And, and seeing that the, there isn't that kind of um, stark separation between the human world and the natural world, but, you know, ways in which there are these sympathetic connections. And, and there, too, there's a kind of spirituality, you know, that's, well, I don't know if you want to call it transcendentalism, but a, but a sensibility around around the, the, the sacred power and pull of nature. And I, and I think, again, this scene, both the violence and chaos that is surrounding the scene, but also what's happening with birth and mothers is also, you know, kind of really quite profound and powerful. Well, you get, you get out of this book, you do get a sense of the ocean as a deeply violent place that, and the natural world is a violent place um, that somehow yet manages to have these moments of communion and spirituality and make them accessible to even even the whalers who are in fact there to kill the very things that Ishmael is at this moment observing. Right. Right. No, I mean that's again part of the the, the just the profundity of the scene, I think, is how he's able to get all that across and again bring uh, some of the depths of our experience more to the surface, even though uh, to go back to what you were saying earlier, it's a recognition that it's impossible to really capture um, and describe it all. Well, the, the book, you know, the book is, it, it's this rumination on the ability of humans to make sense of an insensible world. Which, of course, I think is the core of what religious institutions there, try to do. There we are, <laughs> absolutely sacred and text. I, you know, I guess the question of, you know, what is what is religious and what is sacrilegious. I, I think you've already blown that out of the water in your podcast, but it's clearly a book that tries to tread on that line somewhere and and keep redrawing it throughout the throughout the entire set of events, including the very ritualistic final chase for Moby Dick, which has, you know, it takes place over three days, which feels like a, a not coincidental number that, you know, is preceded by a kind of blood baptism for the harpoon the ish, that Ahab will, will, will use during the hunt. And that ends in, you know, uh, both symbolic deaths of individuals and then the mass, mass death of everybody on the boat except for Ishmael. And I have to say, every time, you know, I read it, I find myself just absolutely gutted by the end yeah. of it. You know, that Melville has taken this um, incredible vehicle of, of meaning making and this set of uh, comrades and the spiritual seekers and loaded them all together on this freighted metaphorical allegorical ship and then brought them to death uh, with the exception of, of Ishmael. I don't know any other way that the book could end. Right. He lives to tell the tale. And he yeah, let's go back to the tale. Uh, but yeah, no, I think that that is, uh, that is right, you know, and, and certainly as you described, that ending is just pretty, uh, one of the more dramatic endings um, in whatever, in literature. Uh, but it, co you know, I think it connects with one more quote. I'll, 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 mention and then we'll be done. Uh, but it ties into death, ties into religion. It's one of my favorites, but it's brutal, you know, when thinking about sacrilegious. Um, it's in the chapter called The Chapel, you know, when he's looking at mm -hmm. all these memorial plaques to all these sailors whose bodies were lost at sea. And and so, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot there. But, but the line that I uh, uh, like and have used several times on social posts uh, is this. But faith, like a jackal, feeds among the tombs, and even from these dead doubts, she gathers her most vital hope. I mean, so right there, you know, Melville, Ishmael, whatever, you know, is like, you, you know, religion. It is about hoping that there's some beyond. Yeah. 
And on that well, note, <laughs> okay. No, no, sorry, go ahead. Finish well, up. I mean, there, there has to be kind of something, you know, I, I referenced the end. One of the things, you, you know, one of the conceits of the book, which doesn't all hold together as a, a set of logical events, but one of the conceits of the book is that it's written by Ishmael after the conclusion of this journey, right? I alone survived to tell you, or I alone escaped to tell you, right? And that, and the, you know, it's a kind of confessional uh, narrative of a victim of, of this trauma. And the idea that Ishmael would somehow go through all of this and yet continue that effort to make meaning of it, to shape the narrative, to endeavor the quests, to travel metaphorically through the ruins and the death of uh, all of his shipmates, there, there is a little bit of hope there. It's pretty qualified, but, um, but it's there. Agreed, and uh, I think that you're that, that you're right to see that even um, with that more stark assessment early on, a part of the journey upon reflection does you know as you read through it have some some kernels as you say of hope. But uh, man, this has been great, Michael. I so appreciate it. I know you know you're busy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, listen, hey, you know I think I'm going to do something unprecedented, and then and that's. Um, Say something directly to the viewers, <laughs> the viewers, the audience, you know, the uh, four or five people listening. Uh, but thinking, I'd love doing this. And if anyone has suggestions for other works of literature, uh, works of art, music, um, something that we can spend an uh, episode of the podcast focusing on, I, I would love to, to hear some suggestions. But this this was a killer. It was great, Michael. Um, really uh, having a chance to talk with you about Moby Dick, and it won't be the last time. All right, thanks, man. Okay, take take it easy. <laughs>